The oldest image in the catacombs comes from today's gospel. It's the image of the good shepherd. Jesus standing with a lamb upon his shoulders. And the image dates back you know, to the end of the first century. In the catacombs where we worshipped in secret in those first, uh, in the beginning years of the, of the faith, and where we buried the dead who died, whether in the Colosseum and the persecution, or just at the end of their life. And it was kind of the origins of the faith, really. And that was the image that, that was chosen for those catacombs, was the Good Shepherd. I thought about it a lot this past week, because I was traveling around Washington, D.C. with a bunch of Butte Central 8th graders. And we spent a lot of time at the most, kind of, the pro, most profound and oldest sites in our country, which we have a young country. It obviously only dates back to the mid-18th century, as far as the foundations go. And, and I've got to say it was very powerful for me being there. I was expecting to be disappointed, but I wasn't. It was, it was a powerful experience. You know, with the Lincoln Memorial, with the Gettysburg Address on one side and the second inaugural on the other side, just powerful speeches kind of moved our country in significant ways. And all the more memorials and the fallen soldiers who kind of preserved our freedoms and kind of most beautifully manifested in, in the great liturgy of the, uh, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and the changing of the guard there, which is so powerfully and precisely you know, performed and it's just a great ritual. It's very powerful. And I, I found it interesting, actually, how George Washington kind of stands at the center of a lot of the architecture in, in Washington, D.C. And, and there's, a, there's a weird tension in, in, in all those different buildings. You go into the rotunda of the Capitol, and you look up, and there's the fresco on the ceiling of the dome that has the apotheosis of George Washington, where he's being taken up into the heavens and made a god. You know, there's like Zeus and Athena and George Washington on the ceiling of the rotunda. And it's just a really beautiful, but like super pagan image. You're like, what's going on here? This... But you see everywhere in the capital city this tension. And it's pretty intense tension between, you know, you've got Christian imagery everywhere. You've got ancient pagan imagery. You've got Freemason architecture everywhere. And Enlightenment thought kind of in the midst of all of it. And there, there was obviously a great tension, that, and, and that tension forged our country into, into what we have today. And I think we chose, in, in many ways, we chose ancient Greek and Roman imagery as a compromise between all those different and, and deeply conflicting ideas at the beginning of, of our, in the founding of our country, because you've got Christians and deists and, and Masons, but no one actually believed in the Greek gods, so you, you can put those anywhere, and, and it's beautiful, and, and it's fine. You know, no one's going to argue with it. But at the same time, I think we're comparing ourselves, you know, obviously, to, to Rome, greatest empire in history, and saying that we're going to be an empire, but not an empire built on oppression and, and conquering, but an empire that is built on individual freedom, on, on real freedom, and built by the people, in a sense. And certainly in the U.S. we're not perfect, but, and we never will be because we're full of us who are sinners. But I think historians do agree that there's something new here in, in our country, that, that there's something profound that was undertaken and something that seemed bound to fail because it had never been done. But here we go, you know, here we stand 250 years later, 
still here. And anyways, I experienced a lot of these feelings amongst a bunch of eighth graders. And so it's obviously not the conversations I was having didn't look, sound like this. But they're an interesting generation to kind of experience that with. You know, you got Generation Z, the I generation. A great group of kids. Are they you know, totally helplessly addicted to their phones? Yes, absolutely, they are. <laughs> are they terrified of books? You know, like reading books, looking at books, being too close to books? Yeah, they're, they're terrified of books, that they're going to be infected with some sort of boredom by these books. We were in the Library of Congress, and I was running around, because the Library of Congress is my favorite building. Beautiful, incredible collection we have there. And I was running past a group of them, and I said, we're going to see the Gutenberg Bible. You know, this is the first thing that came off the printing press. This is a huge moment in hu- human history. Like, we've got to go see the Gutenberg Bible. And a couple of them look up from their phones, and they're like, eh, not interested. You know, go back to playing Fortnite. And I think that's a really interesting insight that I had. I, mean, I don't think it's much different than my generation being obsessed with computers because internet was coming into its own when I was coming of age and, and we were obsessed with it because it's this cool new thing. And I think Generation X was obsessed with punk music, basically. It's high f- iPhones or headphones in all the time and, and probably a lot of, I guess, a lot of drugs in, the, in that generation too. And then baby boomers were obsessed with TVs because TVs were coming around when when you were young, and, and so the TV was kind of the new cool thing, and, and you became, in a sense, addicted to it, because that's just our human nature. We become addicted to things. And not, I don't want to take a downer view on it, because, because of that's just in our human nature. And at the same time, I think it's, it's in part our fault, more than anyone's, because how do we expect our kids to cultivate an intellectual life? to really learn to love the intellectual life and have a curiosity for the world if we have failed to do that ourselves. Because I think, in our, especially in our culture today, you know, reading and learning and, and actually coming to know the world is something that you do when you're young, and then you graduate and you get a job and you become a productive citizen and you leave all that behind and you do your job. And I think that it's an obvious contradiction to young people. And it's, and it's a hypocrisy that why would we have to do this if, all, if the whole goal is just to become a productive citizen? But you see in D.C. that that's not how our country was founded. The pursuit of truth was that how our country was founded. And as long as we're living a hypocrisy and a contradiction, then we're never going to aspire young people to do otherwise. And so they see it. They, you know, they look around and they see, you know, the Library of Congress doesn't seem to matter to my parents and grandparents, so why should it matter to me? I'm going to go back and play Fortnite because it's entertaining. But at the same time, they are curious. You know, they're human beings, so obviously they're curious. And totally engaged in anything that's worth being engaged in. And, and I saw flashes of genuine kind of generosity and selfless love at the same time. And so, absolutely, I have great hope in our future generations after that after that trip. They're still asking the fundamental questions, the questions on which our country was founded. I think we'll look to Lincoln's second inaugural address, beautiful speech, and, and at the beginning of it's him kind of acknowledging the horrors of slavery and how we need to move past that, 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 that slavery is over. And this is when he's reelected in 64. And so he says, after that, he kind of finishes the speech with this beautiful Phrase, with malice towards none, with charity for all, and with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. 
Let us strive on to finish the work that we are in. So he's pointing out that we believe fundamentally that God gives us the capacity to see what is right, to understand what is right, and the capacity for good. And this is so clear to us, he says, it's so clear to us the good and what is right that we're willing to go to war for it. I think that's interesting to read that speech in a context of today when our country, I think more than ever, a sense of meaningless and relativism has kind of descended upon us. That after 250 years of fighting relentlessly for the good, for the common good, uh, this idea that we, that we could find it, that we could know what is good and right, uh, that after 300 years of that, we've just kind of abandoned that struggle and just decided that we need, just need to tolerate each other amongst our differences, that our differences are just worth tolerating and not worth actually the tension that comes with that difference. I think we've, the diversity of our country has crushed us and it's kind of sent us all into hiding. And as a result, the first thing that happens as a result of that is that our faith is privatized, that our faith becomes a matter of us as individuals. And it no longer is something that we bring to bear on the world. And here I think we can learn a great lesson from our junior high kids. That I, th- I found it refreshing and, so, and often uncomfortable how they were willing to just offend someone with a very blunt question. You know, junior high kids, more than anyone, are just willing to offend you with asking a very blunt question. And at times, is there a lack of prudence? Yes, they're eighth graders. Prudence is not the virtue, first virtue we form. And at times, is it plainly inappropriate? Yeah, of course. But there's something raw and good in that willingness to offend someone in the pursuit of the truth and in the willingness to be offended in the pursuit of the truth. We all need that. And I think our political correctness has kind of stolen that from us. It's kind of robbed us of the courage to pursue that in a concrete way. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to tell the world about the gospel, to spread the truth of the gospel. And so if we look to the second reading, we see Paul says, we are God's children now. We're destined to be like him, for we shall see him as he is in heaven. This is our destiny as human beings. All human beings are destined for this. Everyone in the world, without exception, is destined for heaven. That's, our, that's the calling of everyone. So therefore, it's our job to get out there and start telling people about it. So as, it's kind of scary, actually, in the first reading what Peter says in Acts, Christ is the cornerstone. There is no salvation through anyone else. Through the whole history of the church, we've let this, this saying impel us to mission work, to spreading the gospel throughout the world. Not because we fear hell, and not because we fear that everyone else is going to go to hell, but because the truth brings joy, true joy. And it's our job to spread that truth. So we're called to mission. And we thank God that we live in a country that gives us the freedom to go on this mission. To the freedom to bring our faith into the public sphere. And, and we can't let the current climate of our country stop us from this work. From the work of spreading the gospel. I think first, if we want to be capable of doing that, first we have to kind of drench our life in prayer. Drench everything in prayer. That we will never have the courage or the conviction or even feel the need to spread the gospel if we don't know who God is personally. 
so that's the first step. But also we need to up our intellectual life. Like one of the, I saw the Jefferson's personal library, the Library of Congress. Stunning with that guy. He could read Latin, Greek, French, English. He was incredible. He had 1,400 volumes in his, in his study. That's a man who drenched his life in the intellectual life. He was deep in the intellectual life. And that's, that's our country. That's, that's how we were founded. And that's our faith. We have 2,000 years of the incredible intellectual life of the church. I mean, that's, that's more than Jefferson could dream of. And that's what we're called to, to, to really dig into the intellectual life, to know our faith, and then be convicted to spread it. So, we all remember today that we're God's children. And, and we kind of let that truth sink in and kind of drive us out in the world to spread that mission with Christian boldness. Amen.